Coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. People saying they want a better life because when I travel, people look like I'm the rich American. I'm like, I'm the poor black boy from the dirt roads of South Carolina. But then I have to be careful to understand that what's little for me is big for someone else. You know, we all learn by our mistakes. So allowing someone to do that in a safe environment is important. There's no easy path. Nobody's going to hand you anything. There's not a golden ticket. The best things in life come from earning them on your own through hard work. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just say thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the ability to stand in the gap in what we call common ground, knowing quite well that everybody don't agree with what we say and everybody don't disagree with what we say. God, thank you for the leadership ability to stand and take the fiery dot, stand and understand when people shooting at you, whether it's in person or whether it's on the social nets, wherever it is. But it's okay though, because we think that leaders have to take a stand, God, have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. So God, thank you for choosing us as we represent you. In Jesus name, we pray and believe. Amen. 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 Dear Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for the uh, United States. Thank you for the United States for stepping in with Ukraine and Israel and uh, supporting our brothers and sisters that are defending democracy. Let our politicians in D.C. get a backbone and start supporting them financially. Lord, uh, we lift up uh, our guest today, Kelly Hahn, and my buddy Odell Cleveland. Amen. Bill, 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 you mentioned backbone, you mentioned leadership, you mentioned helping, supporting Ukraine and Israel and democracy, and later on want to talk about all of that, but also democracy in the United States of America. But right now, you know, we have a leader in the room. And I remember last night, though, we sat and talked and we were shared some information. How did that work for you last night, Bill? You know, uh, we were at the temple last night and they had a private showing, I guess, that you could call to community mm-hmm. leaders on uh, raw footage of the attack. Uh, they had body cam footage from the Hamas terrorists and a lot of other footage. And I think we saw they said there was 139 bodies that they showed. 
which was about 10% of the people that got killed. So I want to do a show on that because it was very impactful. And I think we ought to bring uh, either Lenny or one of the rabbis in to be with us and talk about that and the impact it had on us and what's going on in Israel. I agree with you 100% because it was interesting that we had about a couple hundred leaders, community leaders in the room. And of course, we in that room, we all don't agree on everything, but we do agree on humanity. Bill, we have a leader with us today. Can you introduce our leader, sir? Sure. Uh, he's a good friend. His family's a good family. I, I thought I was your only friend. Uh, I have two now. Okay. <laughs> so you wouldn't got another black friend on me, Bill? Another black guy or what? I, he's different. I don't know if he's black. <laughs> he's definitely different. And uh, no, his name is Kelly Hahn, and I got to meet him through his dad, Ron Hahn. We were trying to figure out the other day where we actually met, and I think it was my wife and his sister at Caldwell Academy because our kids were going there at the same time. So then that kind of morphed into it. And then we started realizing what a rich family they are. They became great, great friends. And, you know, it's it's one of those things Kelly was talking about earlier. They're friends that you don't see all the time, but when you see them, you're totally comfortable. And you can tell if you're going to get along, you travel with them. And I've traveled with Kelly and it's a lot of fun. I can tell you that. Kelly's background from what I know, and he'll give us a lot more information right now. He does furniture design furniture manufacturing. He's an entrepreneur. He do, he's done a lot of things. We're going to talk about how he made his first million when he was 12. <laughs> when he was 12? Okay. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. It was legal too. Okay. <laughs> Kelly, come on into the show and introduce yourself. First of all, it's great to be here. I have to say that it's weird hearing your own voice in a in a microphone. Yeah, it takes getting used <laughs> it to. It takes a little getting getting used to. But you've but... got a great, great voice for this. Oh, I don't know. I listened to Adele. You know, you had told me about this podcast, I guess, years ago. And as circumstances go, I just never got around to listening to it. And I had the great pleasure of having lunch with you and Lenny Samet and Odell. And um, just sitting with him, I was like, wow, now I really have to investigate this <laughs> and and see, you know, what this is all about. And so it was really, it was wonderful because I, I probably sat and listened to over the course of the last week, maybe three hours or four hours of, of your podcast. Wow. I was really just impressed. And I, I mentioned this before, before we, we started that it, it's really neat to see you guys and your interactions. I got to see it at lunch and like, you genuinely like each other and you enjoy each other's company. And so talking about issues and the many things that you cover, because I mean, let's, let's face it, you guys cover tough topics, you know, topics that need to be, to be discussed, but you do it in such a sincere way that, you know, if people could listen and really? witness this. If there was a larger audience that could see this, I think you accomplish what you're, you're setting out to do, which is, you know, kind of create common ground. So I, I was very impressed. And well, thank you. It's thank a you. pleasure to be here first and first and foremost. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm a, would be considered a leader. If anything, I've kind of been a lone wolf. <laughs> that was, <laughs> I think people would agree with that. <laughs> you know, um, there's some people that are natural leaders and there's some people that just need to be left alone and they need to figure it out. And that doesn't mean that, that they can't get along in groups or, or work in, in settings where it requires group thought. For me, I've always been more of the feeling that I'm going to succeed, not necessarily on my own, or I'm going to fail on my own. And so 
if I rely on myself, then I only have myself to blame. I can't blame a team. I can't blame other people. Now I need to preface this by saying that I've been surrounded by great people and, yes, you have. and great leaders. And so it's not as though I'm just out there doing it on my own with, with no help, with no access to brilliant minds and, and great people and also fantastic partners and employees. But from the standpoint of kind of like, uh, creating your own thing. That's always been where, where, where you know, who else has done that. You know, who else has done that similar thing. Steve jobs. Well, yeah, he's, he's did his own thing, but he's surrounded by great people for sure. It's almost as though, um, he was a, um, uh, the conductor of an orchestra. Amen. And so the orchestra, um, they're individually playing their instrument, but the conductor is is keeping everybody in rhythm and in flow. And those are the greatest leaders, Good frankly. Point. I yeah. mean, those- there's, I, there's a story. Somebody asked him, uh, he's being interviewed, and somebody wanted to know what kind of market research did he do for the iPhone? What was his budget and who did he use? And he said, we didn't do any market research. And they said, what? You launched that without market he says, no, I, I knew what the consumer wanted. Yeah. And I just made what the consumer wanted. Yeah. Also, I do appreciate his his philosophy because his philosophy is that group thought is poison to mm. the design process. That group thought, if you just take the sum total of a bunch of average ideas and put it into something, all you get is average. And I think he was the guy that was willing to come up with the idea, use the people. Cause I don't think he was the greatest designer or engineer, but he had the idea. And I don't think he sat in a room of people and said, help me create a great idea. I think he created the idea and then used those people to refine it, to make it better, to engineer it, to market it. But the idea or the basic principle for him is, is that group thought is poison and a bunch of average ideas just create an average product. Right. And I think in his mind, he would rather like shoot for the stars and create something great like the iPhone than just create something that's kind of average yeah. or just not really that spectacular. You yeah. know, though I don't I don't really think that the world needs more average stuff. They need more great things. And I mean, for the longest time, Apple has kind of been at that pinnacle. I'm going to switch gears here for a minute and I'm going to get Odell to come in. How did you make your first million? <laughs> and then how did you lose lose your first million? <laughs> so I took a giant leap of faith when I was 22 years old. I knew pretty early that I wasn't going to be the greatest employee. <laughs> I had had some circumstances. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> I had had some circumstances in my life and I had a pivot. And my dad created businesses and sold businesses, was in the process of creating a new furniture business. And I was like, didn't have anything to do at the time. And he was like, do you want to come with me on this trip to Asia? And I had been to Asia in the past, but more as a tourist. And I did a, an exchange program in, in Japan or exchange school program in Japan. So, I mean, I was familiar with Asia from, from a tourist standpoint, but not from the business standpoint. And this was going to be a purely business trip. And so I'll never forget that I was flying to Hong Kong and I was flying by my by myself and my dad was already there and I landed. And in those days, you landed early in the morning. And so I dropped off my stuff in the hotel and I had been sleeping on the plane. So I was in the mood to go roam. So I dropped off my stuff and I went out and it was the middle, you know, like the middle of the day in Hong Kong and there was people and it was robust and there was something going on there. Something that I had not seen or felt 
anywhere else I've been, maybe besides New York City. But there was something going on there in Asia. And it, you could just feel the excitement and the enthusiasm. And I just wanted to be a part of it. And I didn't know how. And so I just made up my mind. I'm, I'm moving here. And wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I didn't end up in Hong Kong, but nevertheless, the, the trip continued. And so I ended up in Thailand because my dad was doing like a, a range of trips. It was Hong Kong, South China, Guangzhou, up to Fuzhou, and then down to Southeast Asia. And he had a partnership with a furniture factory in Thailand. And so they were going to kind of be one of his partners in this new venture. And so I got a chance to have the same experience in Thailand. And in those days, it's different now in those early days of furniture manufacturing and uh, sourcing, because all the business was slowly but surely moving offshore. Mm -hmm. You did business through what they called agents. And the agents were kind of represented the factories and they were kind of responsible for bringing the American buyers and the, the American wholesalers over to Asia into the, the factories. And so I ended up meeting an agent there in Thailand that was part of the factory that my dad was going to visit and we're instantly friends and there was a connection and he just didn't represent furniture factories. He represented any kind of manufacturing that existed in Southeast Asia at that time, which the majority of production for Southeast Asia in those days was not the United States market. It was mostly Japan and Europe. And so you would go into these factories, they could be manufacturing anything. It could be um, housewares. It could be, you know, you mentioned candles earlier. It could be apparel. It could be furniture, but it was specifically marketed to Japan or to Europe. And I saw opportunity. I was like, wow, this is, you know, these um, designs are already existing. They're well thought out because the Japanese design is all about form and function. And same with, with Europe, they're always had just a little bit more refined approach to how, how they look at design. And I was like, these products with some small modification can be marketed in the U S but nobody has ever really done that, you know? And so I got together with this uh, other gentleman and we put together a company and we just started using each other's resources. He had a team in Asia that, you know, could handle the exportation, could handle documents, could handle the banking. I had design as a background and I had a wealth of knowledge of, of customers and potential customers. And so we kind of just put the peanut butter and chocolate together and, and, uh, um, made a peanut butter and chocolate, not peanut butter and jelly. Okay. Go ahead. See, yeah. this is different. Peanut butter and chocolate. All yeah, right. That, well, that's my favorite. <laughs> Can't help it. <laughs> Sweet tooth. Yeah. And so we put it together and we, created a company and immediately started just going to these factories, refining the designs, changing them, modifying them just in the slightest way that would make them more marketable to the U S and, you know, sold them. And wow. that was kind of the, that's, you know, that you were 22 when the set 22. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember when you got your first million in the bank? What'd you think? <laughs> Odell, have you seen a million in your checking account? No, not yet. Not okay. yet. Not Stay yet. tuned. Stay tuned. We're going to learn. You know, it's, it's funny. I'll tell you, I'm clearly trying to avoid this. I'll tell you. So, I didn't grow up poor. I'll just throw that out there. Okay. But even though I didn't grow up poor, I, my family never let us feel like we were rich, but we were rich on experiences. My parents were really big on, on experiences more than, than things. And so 
of course, we're all driven by money. And I always feel that anybody who says otherwise, they're probably <laughs> not telling the truth. I mean, you saw Odell hold me, hand me a check a few minutes ago, right? <laughs> yeah. And to say that and every, I took it. <laughs> everything that we do is is driven by money is, you know, that's that's not necessarily the case either. There's there's kind of a fair balance. But circling back, the first time we sold something and I got a commission check and I, maybe it was five thousand, six thousand dollars. I never felt so rich in my life as that first check. Like I thought like it doesn't get any better than this. I mean, at that time I was floating and that's the magical thing about being in business for yourself and being an entrepreneur and taking chances and risks and then the reward. And of course, the more that you get of that reward, the more you're able to do things and have nice experiences and things like that. So I'll just leave that million dollar uh, okay, uh, question, fair enough, fair enough. question at that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You made me think about something the first time that I felt that kind of excitement. And I don't know if it's pride, but just satisfaction that you did something was the first time I actually bought for my company and owned it a copy machine. Yeah. I've never owned a copy machine. I've always, you know, in companies, I, you know, but this was mine. And I went up and I actually hugged it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you kiss the copy machine, Mr. Goebel? No, I didn't okay. go that far. I wasn't that close to it. <laughs> good, 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 good. Go ahead, Odell. We've been monopolizing. No, no, no. It's it's all good. It's, it's interesting because <laughs> to Kelly's point and Kelly, thank you. Kelly didn't grow up poor and I grew up poor and there's nothing wrong with being poor, but I enjoy not being poor. That's a better experience than being poor. But to Kelly's point and his parents didn't allow him to understand or didn't allow him to come up with a silver spoon in his mouth. So I say congratulations there. How do you, you do have children. I do. How do you allow your children not to be, um, weakened by access and resources? Oh, that's a great question. In some ways, the world has changed. And I think there is a bigger emphasis on fancy things and nice things. You know, social media is really promoting kids with Gucci bags and all this fancy stuff, you know, at a much, much earlier, earlier age. That was usually things that you acquired, you know, in adulthood after you've accomplished something. And so that that's tough. It's really tough. I don't know if I have the answer except for I tried to follow the same philosophy that I was brought up with, with my parents, which is my, my kids are very rich on experiences. I mean, Got they've it. traveled, they've experienced and seen life in other places. And of course, I mean, they have nice things. And I mean, it's not as though we've, we've kept them from access from nice things, but maybe um just in, wow. Tough question. Well, I, I, well, I think from an outside observer. Because I can't say that I did it exactly like my parents did. I mean, of well, course. None of us do. Yeah. I mean, none of us do. It, you use it as kind of a barometer or, or you use it for a guidance, but maybe I haven't quite done it as well as they did it. Maybe I should say. Well, you know, it's interesting from an outsider looking in at your family, your family unit, which is your mom and your dad and your wife and the other relatives. You've got a village. Oh, that's for sure. And that village helps you with the kids, keeping them grounded. Oh, 100%. You know, you guys in your podcast, I've, you know, I've listened to you talk about this concept of privilege. And from that standpoint, I am 100% stand on top of the mountain of privilege because I have had the opportunity to grow up in a family with a mom and a dad who've been married for like, I think it's 
you know, 50 going on 50 years, oh, if not wow. 50, wow, okay. 50 plus plus years. And then also, you know, I've had them or my father as a, as a role model for business and my mom for like a moral compass. And so for that, I hit the jackpot in life just, just with that. And th- that is privilege because there's not kids that get that experience. And so I think my kids have seen that or have that. I mean, I'm here for my kids. I'm there for them, but they have to, at the same time, they have to go do things and accomplish things on their own. But you know, it's interesting you would say that because a lot of times it's like our friend Marty Coldis, we call him the maverick. I believe because I was in corporate sales, I never started a company overseas. And But when I travel and you mentioned something that resonated a lot, certain cities. I remember going to Jerusalem a lot of times or going to London or Paris or New York or Vegas or <laughs> LA. Different cities have different energy, even Charleston or Savannah, where I like to go when I'm more of a historian type mood. But you mentioned the energy that you never felt before, because sometimes when we travel abroad, we are the arrogant rich Americans. And we complain about a lot of things in other cultures. The room's not large enough. There's this, there's this, and everything else. How did you deal with the culture at a young age without comparing it to what it should be versus what it was? And you said something. You said, I looked at it and I saw opportunity. I didn't complain about it. I saw opportunity. I saw design. I saw form and function. You saw all that. Where did you get your vision from? Well, first and foremost, I agree with you. Every place that you visit has a different energy. And I love to travel. To this day, I love to travel. One of the neatest experiences, I'll I'll digress for a second. Back in in the mid-90s to the early 2000s, the cheapest way to get a business class or first class ticket was to fly around the world. Okay. No, you talking my language now, partner. Right. And so <laughs> no, I love comfort plus. I can't always afford first class, but I'm in the comfort well, plus. Okay. So I'm six, four and you know, yeah, exactly. I'm, there you go. I'm a big guy. Right. And so um, I'm not, but you better look in the bill though. You better look in the bill. You, you know, have more hair than bill. You go with the hair <laughs> thing. You have more hair than me and bill. You win the hair award. Go ahead. My friend. Listen, I'm a hand model. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, I've heard you guys in your previous podcast getting this argument, Odell. Uh-huh. The good looking black guy. I'm the oh, best yeah. looking black guy in the studio today. <laughs> the best looking black guy in the studio today. 100%. There you go. But coming back, the cheapest way to get in here, folks, it's getting real deep. I'm going to go get some hip boots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was to fly around the world. And so the rules of the, of the ticket were you had to go in one continuous motion. You could still go a little bit north and south, but you had to go, if you went east, you had to continue going east. And so my wife and I, we would buy these tickets when we would come back to the US, whether we were coming back for furniture markets or for holidays or whatever the case may be. We would buy these around the world tickets. And so we would stop in places that that we had never seen or wow. my wife had never seen. And each place that we stopped over the course of a decade just was new and interesting and and unique and had a different energy and a different vibe. I mean, you talk about London, Paris, Rome, all these places, there's nothing universal about them. Well, well hold on a minute, Kelly. So let, let me interject something sure, sure. because being the black guy, I have to interject something. Okay. So you said to your wife, yo, baby, 
if you come with me, I'll show you the world. Kelly, was that the pickup line? No. Was that the pickup line? Because you said you convinced your wife to say, we're going to get a ticket and we're going to fly around the world. On the contrary. <laughs> you haven't met his wife. Okay. She rules the roost. Okay. Uh, All he's right. a big guy. She's a little lady. Uh-huh. Doesn't matter, man. 250 okay. pound finger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I was just wondering, what was the pickup line? We go around the world, baby. No, there really it really wasn't. It was like she's like more economical. So she's like, Well, if this is the cheapest way to get home, then that's then that's where how we're going. Oh, you sound like my wife. Oh, okay. I thought that sounded like my wife. This All is right. the most economical way. Well, let me ask you, I, I'm, uh, how much does it cost to go around the world? So in those days, around the world ticket was around three thousand five hundred. Oh my goodness, that's cheap. Well, and you know, it stayed that way. Tickets have stayed stayed static for a long time, you know, depending mm-hmm. on the season. But after COVID, like now it's it's yeah. it's crazy. Was it Pan Am or would you fly on those? United. Things? So United? I, okay. yeah, and so I made it to three I was at three million miles on United right at the start of the pandemic. Of course, travel just stopped. Yeah. It yeah. stopped. And so I mean, I was averaging, you know, between 150 and 200,000 miles a year in in travel. And so you can get to 3 million pretty quickly, but then I switched. I'm not a I don't want to turn this into a anti-united, but I became an American guy and I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm American. <laughs> I got a million miles on American. Okay. Hey, speaking of that, your travel he was one of the first guys to have COVID here in the United States. Tell him about that <laughs> and well, what you did with, with the Baptist hospital. Well, yeah, it was, it was interesting because um, I just thought I had a cold, <laughs> you know, this was early, early in the, in the pandemic. And so I was out and I was playing tennis, which is kind of my passion. And I couldn't catch my breath. I was like, something's, something's up. So I was asking one of my doctor friends that I play, play tennis with, you know, do you think something's wrong? Like, do I have sports induced asthma or something like that? And he's like, no, you probably just have a cold. Stop, stop whining and, and start playing. (laughs) (laughs) And and it lasted for like, Oh, did he charge you for that? That recommendation? No (laughs) school, school of hard knocks, shut up and play. Um, And so, you know, it, it went on for about a week and just like cold, like symptoms, just not feeling very well. And then, you know, you had started hearing about this mysterious uh, cough and something going on in, in Asia, and it was starting to gain some some momentum. And I got better, but by somewhere, somehow I, I gave it to my son and he got really sick. He mm-hmm. got full-blown pneumonia. And of course, they weren't thinking this is COVID. This is just like, he's got pneumonia. Let's, let's, let's treat it. So fast forward two or three, four or five months and COVID is really starting to take off. And so my partner and I, we're headed off to Asia in kind of into the headwinds of COVID when everybody else, they were shutting down the shop and they're saying, you know, we're ceasing to travel. There'll be no Asia travel. And, you know, we're right there in the, in the middle of it. Like we're literally leaving Vietnam as they're shutting the country down. And so I came home and again, I had like a little, a little cough. And I was wondering, oh, did COVID get me? Were we risking it all by going over there at so late, you know? And I went and got tested and we did the testing. They did the antibody test at the same time because this was kind of early. And they're like, you don't have COVID, but you had COVID. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because they had a, a test for that. It was in Winston-Salem. And so I got a, a few weeks later, I got a phone call and they said, you know, can we continue to test your blood? And so... They continued to test it. I guess they were looking to see how long maybe natural immunity might might last. So, 
Yeah. So I, and you know, now I laugh because I think I've had COVID like five times, six times. (laughs) It's just an inconvenience. Okay. So you said, Hey, you know, the the bionic COVID man and everything like that. But let me ask a question though. Go back to, you talked about, if you will revisit the cities, you were saying different cities have different energy for sure. People don't understand that, but what did you get from the different energies and how did you know when you're doing business around the world, how do you know where's a good business person, a business opportunity versus where you're going to get scammed or whether you're going to get taken advantage of? Well, I mean, take, for instance, like the difference between London and Rome. Rome is like a city of chaos. There's motorbikes and people moving in at high speed. And then you go to London and it feels very buttoned up and very proper. And, and I think that the feeling mimics the people, mm. right? And so... You know, the English are very prim and proper and and the Italians are very like, hey, you're sitting by yourself at this table. Come join us. Come sit with us. You look like somebody who it might be fun, fun to visit with. I can't tell you how many times I've been in places like that. Either I'm by myself, which is a rarity because I hate to travel by myself. That's like my my least favorite thing in the whole whole world to do. But they'll invite you. But the only place that you experience that are like in the London pubs, mm-hmm. like, but okay. not in a business situation. If you're at a proper business location for dinner or lunch and you're sitting by yourself, you're going to be sitting by yourself. Yeah. High tea. We've done that. Yeah. 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 But you go to a pub in London and you really see the, the, the culture of, of the English. It's yeah. Fun. We remember seeing all the people outside the pub because the, they can't smoke in it. There was, there was hundreds of people outside and you're all social. It was so cool to see. We traveled, you and I traveled to Medellin, Colombia. And uh, I'd like to, you, share your experience with that uh, with our guest oh i mean medellin was so cool i mean of course you guys have watched narcos right yes i mean pablo escobar i mean it's his home that was his home i mean you know you know you're cool when you can make killing people and and selling drugs like seem fun (laughs) (laughs) like i mean pablo escobar and i mean so when you think about medellin you think about that and we went down there of course searching for for outdoor furniture right and um, oh, I was amazed. I mean, you always hear it's funny because I don't care if it's if if it's war as Mexico, where I spent plenty of time or or down in, in Brazil, where I've spent time. You know, there's dangerous places. We talked about this at lunch. There's dangerous places mm-hmm. in Greensboro. I mean, I can find trouble in Greensboro just as easily as you can get into trouble in, in Medellin. But no, I, I thought it was amazing. Um, I thought, well, what a neat city. And great restaurants and fun culture, fun, fun people. Good energy. Good energy. It's completely counterintuitive or or counter to what, what you would think it would be. You know, you think most people or most Americans would think it's just a a backwards country and, and, you know, basically they're just, all they're doing is agriculture and, and pushing drugs into the United States. And on the contrary, it's a very thriving country. I was, I was completely blown away with it. So when you see, switch it a little bit, but not really. When you look at the southern borders of the United States of America, Mm -hmm. and many people say that they're coming here for work opportunities. Obviously, you've traveled around the world. Bill, you've done a lot of work there. Not asking you to judge, but labor and opportunity is very important. What do you think about people coming here to work or People saying they want a better life because when I travel, people look like I'm the rich American. I'm like, I'm the poor black boy from the dirt roads of South Carolina. But then I have to be careful to understand that what's little for me is big for someone else. We live in a very large house, just me and my wife now, because we empty nesters. So 
what do you need a house with two master bedrooms about three four bathrooms and you know all this stuff and it's just two people and you think in america we just overdo it or that's just our lifestyle so we don't say to people don't come over here but then we say who's gonna do the work who's gonna pick who's gonna do this who's gonna do that so what's your thoughts on that because obviously you've dealt with a lot of different people from a lot of different perspectives and you've seen poverty in other countries you've seen wealth in other countries and the same to you bill after our guest responds well we all came here by some route right none of us our families are traced here right and so we all came whether you know it's our great grandparents grandparents whatever for opportunity so everybody's seeking opportunity in the early days of immigration we were a small country and we needed immigration now we're, you know, I don't know, what's the population? Over 350 million. 350 million. You know, now we don't need an influx of immigration to, to create a country. So, but you still have people wanting to come here for, for opportunities. I see it every day or I see it frequently because we have a manufacturing plant in Tijuana, Mexico, and I go there probably three, three or two or three times per month. And, you know, Tijuana is a Tijuana is a, a border town. And so that's, you know, you hear that about, outside of San Francisco, right? No, outside San Diego. San, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. San Diego. The reason I say that I went to leadership Greensboro, not leadership Greensboro center for creative leadership once. And they had a place there. And one night the guy said, Hey, you want to go across the border, you know, to Tijuana. Tijuana. And I'm like, I'm black. I don't need to be going across the border to Tijuana. And you all are drinking. I don't drink. I think I'm going to stay right here. So that's all. So keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California going to Tijuana for fun. So, but that's a whole nother topic. It might be a whole nother show. That's where unsupervised kids went when their parents were out of oh, yeah. town. And oh, yeah. so, I've been there a couple times. But no, so it's a border town and it's people looking for access into the hope that is America. And so I understand it. I think that maybe my position on it is a little bit um, unique in the sense that I say, if you want to come here and work and do whatever the jobs that you're coming here to do, no problem. Just register. I mean, when I worked in a foreign country, I had to get a proper business visa. I had to register. I had to do everything in a proper way. I wasn't just there living, coming and going. I was identified. I was a, I think they called him a, um, can't remember what the term was, but it's like a alien visitor or something, okay. something, it translates something like alien visitor, but you were registered. And so I've always felt like, let these people come, but just register, you know, pay your taxes, do whatever, um, use the systems. If you're, if you're bringing your children, let them go to the public schools, do whatever you need, have access to what we have, but just register and do it. Not like cloak and dagger, but you know, in like a proper way. And so I always felt like there was a way to, to regulate it. Like don't stop people from coming here for opportunity, but at least figure out a way to do it in a way where they're coming here and they can't, they have to live in the shadows. To me, that's right. just a, um, a really a, a crime against humanity that these people come here and they have to like be fearful that they could be caught and sent back away and, you know, uprooted from their kids who may, may have been born here. Right. Bill, your thoughts. Well, you know, we had, a, you made me think about something, Kelly. We, we went and did a bourbon trail trip with, uh, with my buddies, the smoking Jews and one Gentile. Okay. And, uh, we had a driver who was from Costa Rica and a uh, young guy. And uh, and I was sitting in the front with him talking. And I said, uh, do you get to go back to your country much? And he goes, no, I, I would be afraid to go back because there's uh, 
I forgot the terminology, but it's one of those foreigners that are children that have been brought up or something. There's mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. some reason that they can't go back because they won't be able to get back into country. So they have to stay here. And I said, well, do you have family here? He goes, yeah, my aunts and uncles and my sister just moved up. And I said, oh, really? Why did you leave? And he said, well, the gangs. He said, they were so bad that my parents sent me up here to be safe. And I said, uh, is that why they sent your sister? And they said, well, my sister was walking down the street in Costa Rica one day and a gang member saw her and she's a beautiful young lady. And he said, that's my wife. And he just kidnapped her Mm. and she was gone for three years. Wow. Before they found her. And when they found her, they brought her up here. I said, well, man, how is she doing? She says, well, she's struggling, but she's in a safe place now. So, Kelly, with all your travel around the world, with all your access, would you, if you had to, as a second choice, I know America is your first choice. As a second choice, which country would you reside in? Oh, easy. We talked about this a little bit at lunch. The first time I went to Australia, I was like, wow, this place is so dynamic. I mean, I grew up in California, grew up surfing, you know, outdoors, playing sports. And the culture is so similar to ours, very free spirited, very just fun people and or South African. In the old days when we were traveling, the first time I went to Cape Town, I was like, wow, this place is, is, is really amazing. I mean, it's a coastal town. It's, it has beaches and a vibrant feel to it. And it's gotten less safe. So I, I would say 100%, I would say if I couldn't live in America and I had to be expatriated somewhere, definitely Australia, but I love living in America. I, I, you know, despite its, its flaws and its mistakes in the past, there's still to me, the, it's still resonates with me having traveled all around the world. It still feels like a place where the dream is still alive. Like you can start off with an idea and you can reach your dreams. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist in other places, but the familiarity of it to me, having been in other places, it still seems that there is a reason why people still want to get here. Right. Well, you've, you've accomplished a lot in your personal life. You've accomplished a lot in your professional life. What's there left for Kelly to accomplish? What other mountains are there for you to climb? Well, I mean, our business is always changing and the dynamics of businesses is, is constantly changing. And so I'm not sure that I can't really answer the question what what still lies, because in some ways, I maybe I haven't accomplished everything that I, I set out to do. But that being said, maybe that's the reason why they're goals and you just keep reaching for them and you may or may not attain them, but it's something it's a, it's the trophy at the end of, of whatever you're, you're searching for. But, you know, I'll use my dad as an example. He's 81 years old, um, almost 82. And he still works every day. Maybe not with the, the, the vigor and the zest of when I saw him when he was in his forties or fifties, but he works every day because it still gives him meaning. It's still a reason to get out of a bed. reason to get out of bed. I mean, yeah. you can only play so much tennis or have lunches with friends and things like that. It's still like, he still enjoys seeing our successes, our team successes, my successes, my brothers, my family, our successes. And he also likes still being in, involved. And I like having him involved because I mean, the knowledge that he he has and the experiences he has, they're all relevant. I don't care when, at what point you're in your life, if you have a mentor or somebody who has experienced it maybe 20 times, having that asset in your pocket is brilliant. But your dad had the wisdom to know that you were different. Because you said, Odell, I was different. And he asked me, do you want to come with me 
on this business trip. Yeah. He allowed you to be different. He supported you being different. And that had to make a big impact in your life. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, everybody's path is different. And I don't think that there's a one clear way of raising kids, but at least my parents, they had the vision that we're going to kind of let our kids go where they go, you know, and make mistakes and do what you do and, you know, hope that you learn from it and that, you know, you use it as a, as a lesson in life and you recover from it. So, yeah, that's a good safety net. That's a good way to learn. Yeah. uh, You know, we all learn by our mistakes. So allowing someone to do that in a safe environment is important. I want to switch gears. I got something else for you. What are you doing now? I know you you design for different like East Elm, uh, Rooms to Go, or Hard Rock. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought he was recruiting Odell, the good looking, slim and trim black guy to be a model. He said he's a hand model. Bill, I'm, I'm trying to get to the point where I'm, a, I'm the face. I'm the face. You want to be the face I'm model? The face. I'm the face, <laughs> Kelly. I'm the face of your next creation. What do you think my question about what new mountain? I was getting ready to say, hey, brother, look at me. Look at the talent is, front, is right in front of you. It's clear. <laughs> oh, it is getting it's deep. It's undeniable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Gracious. Um, well, I don't know what I can say after that. <laughs> It's just fun to listen to him talk. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, it's, it's just really. Uh, he's, a, he's a Baptist pastor. And when he gets cranking, look out, just put the pulpit up and let him go. By I mean, the way, he's speaking let me, Friday night. Let me tell, tell you a funny story. So my dad, once upon a time, he was uh, very engaged in public speaking and, and he would go all over the country to give talks. And it's funny because, and this is back in the day before the modern age of the internet, where you can put on a YouTube video and get inspiration. And I would walk into the room and he would have on these preachers giving like their sermons. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what are you listening to? He was like, these guys know how to communicate. They know how to connect with their audience. They know how to keep their attention and they know how to drive home a point, which is as a public speaker, you know, those are the the key components of giving a, a good talk or a good speech. So, I mean, he would have on these, these sermons or these, whatever, uh, what are they, are they ser- sermons? Yes. Some of them sermons, some of them public address announcement yeah. because, you know, certain preachers, ah, we don't know. But yet. these guys, I mean, they could, if you just took off the pastor title and right. put them in a business and they were going at the same topic with the same amount of passion and the same ability to connect and really get the people to listen, they could do anything. And clearly he, that moved him. And so he would listen to those guys from, from time to time as kind of inspiration for how to talk and connect to whoever the audience was for whatever he was talking about. I would love to meet your dad. Oh, he's a character. Yeah, he is. He's a good guy. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's the, a character. Uh, what you were talking about with that, I used to watch that Rex Humbard or whatever his name was. He was on TV when, and I used to watch it and uh, I was born Catholic and, you know, obviously he was not my mom would walk in when i was watching she says, what are you doing and i said this guy's fascinating his delivery you know how he's delivering it his passion exactly and it was the charisma coming through a tv screen you could feel it yeah. like yeah i mean maybe you agree or don't agree with whatever the message is but the way they're bringing it is like you can't help you're engaged you you're can't. you're listening yeah they have your attention yep and that's that's a key as well you know i teach in my company and what i find is it's the message isn't as important as how you make them feel you make them feel 
that they're they're enjoying themselves and they're actually learning. So, so go back to these companies that you're working with and what do you do now? Well, our, our, we have two primary businesses now. We have a residential furniture business where we sell to the top 100 retailers in the country. And then we have a hospitality business and we have contracts with the major hotel brands around the world and in the United States. And so those are our, our two main focuses. I'm primarily driving the creative component for both of the companies in, in different ways. You know, we're still primarily, it's furniture based. Whereas in my early days, it was across the boards. There wasn't anything I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at now. It's, it's furniture, furniture based. And that's a tough business. It's a, t- it's a really, um, it's, it, COVID was a crazy time for furniture because the whole world was stuck at home and they're looking at their ugly furniture or they were, you know, tired of being pent up in the same room and they just needed a change. And so it drove this dynamic tidal wave of furniture purchasing, you know, over the course of two and a half years, even with just the huge amount of inflation that was in furniture and with um, shipping costs and things like that, people still bought. It didn't matter what price you put it at. And now we're kind of on the other side of that. It's like when the tidal wave comes and then the, the, wave the water, yeah, the water goes back out to to sea, yeah. and now you have to clean clean up the mess. We're we're in the clean up the mess phase of the furniture business now. Fortunately for us, the opposite of that is happening with the hospitality business. Whereas people still, I think, after the the fear of COVID was going to kill everyone, and we were going to be wiped off the face of the earth, and we could start traveling again, people started traveling again, and they haven't stopped. And so that's been that's been great for the hospitality side of our business. Actually, it's been. It's also been a curse, a blessing and a curse because business has been so robust that hotels don't even want to stop and do a, a refurb on their properties because they can rent the rooms. Even if they're have been a, a slightly abused, they're just not in a huge rush because they've got high occupancy. And so they don't want to take rooms offline to refurb them. So it's, we're kind of in a dynamic time in the furniture industry. But we all, we love it. And I mean, it's like anything else in life. You have to figure out how to modify and change and become more efficient and, and use the skills that you've learned in these boom and busts. And so um, I still enjoy the furniture industry very much. You're good at it. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Um, do you all do target audiences and your creativity or your creation and design of furniture? And what I'm talking about, African-American females who are big time professional breadwinners uh, making all the money in the world who like nice quality furniture, but in an Afrocentric type design, more prints, just stuff like you all, not just pictures. I'm not talking about pictures. I'm talking about in design because you mentioned that form and function. Do you ever target it from that perspective or What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's unique because um, furniture design has changed so much. Um, Furniture design used to be, you could almost tell somebody's style by where they lived. And there's kind of been a furniture homogenization happening where it used to be in the Northeast had a distinguished style. The Southeast had a distinguished style. Florida had its own distinguished style, the South, deep South and the West. Each one, you knew where you were. I I remember... um, a great mentor of mine, Sid Linger, who was just a brilliant designer, brilliant mind. He asked me a question. He said, do you know how they spell cherry in the Midwest? And I said, C-H-E-R-R-Y. He said, nope, O-A-K, oak. 
And so that was like your, <laughs> that was like your first lesson, you know, lesson number one. And you know, if, if you're designing for this customer, it better be Oak and in this, it better be cherry. And now um, there's, like I said earlier, there's just this kind of homogenization that's happened. And now style is, is pretty universal. And I mean, part of this is um, also can be, um, I guess you would say that it's um, social media because now everybody's tastes are seemingly starting to align. And also like, these shows on TV that are promoting design and that are showing how people live. And so you have more access to seeing different styles. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I, I like that style. I, yeah. I, I, um, that feeling is what, what I like, or I would love my house to feel like this, but to come back to your original question of, are we marketing to a certain ethnicity? No. The second thing I learned from Sidlinger, and this is profound and some people prescribe to it. Others don't which is the first rule of design is design for the masses eat with the classes. Mm, explain that to me. So the idea is that if you create something or design something that's for a small few, you'll sell some, but not in a great amount. And you're certainly not going to get rich doing that or wealthy doing that or build a company doing that. Conversely, if you build something that is something that is more mass appealed, then there's a bigger breath. You have the opportunity to sell more. So figure out how to get to that big fat middle where the world exists. And to be honest with you, as a, as a designer, I I have struggled with that in the past because you heard earlier about my philosophy of kind of, I've always been willing to take more risk Uh in terms of, of the design process and the products that we bring and almost um, to the fault of being too early to the party, meaning that we're designing something that is going to work. The, the consumer is going to get there, but they're not there now. And so, you know, but that's unique. And I mean, that's the beauty of the lesson in any business, which is, and I'll tell you um, in furniture sales and furniture um, wholesaling is a unique business in the sense that, and we were talking about this at our, at our lunch about the high point market. And so every market there's, you know, hundreds or millions of square feet of, of showroom and people bring their designs to the, to the market in the hopes that the buyers from all over the world, from the United States will come and they'll select that one product. And so the idea is to throw out as much product as you can cast a big enough of a net that at the end of the market, you've captured your designs will be bought and purchased by the, the, the retailers. But if you use that philosophy um, and casting a big net, um, one of two things can happen. You can get lucky and have a big haul or you can fail. And so most people and most manufacturers that I know, they typically in the middle price points in in the commodity or in the middle, what we were talking about, they cast a very wide net and maybe they'll sell one or two or three of those from 10 or 12. Right. So, you know, that's not a big success rate. Three from 12 is not like a great day. And so, but it's all about risk and taking chances and putting out product that will hopefully resonate with whomever your target is and the buyer seeing that vision too. And so the other thing that we do, and this is the part of the design process that I love is talking about why this is why we did this. This is how we did this. And this is what we were thinking about doing this. And then educating the buyer as to what our thoughts were in the design process so that it may be like, oh, okay, now I understand. Now I get what they were trying to do rather than just looking at it as a box with drawers and, and something place to stick things. Put a story behind it. A story behind it. Exactly. Um, Unbeknownst to the two of you, Odell 
is a designer of furniture. I know, I know, I know. Really? Yes. Yeah, so You're what right. I I didn't know that. Are you for it, hire? No, 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 no. <laughs> but what I designed was a the old Odell Cleveland collection no, no, coming no, no, no. to you soon. It's the Beverly <laughs> Cleveland collection. It's a you remember the old fashioned cedar chest? Yes. Where it was made out of cedar and you open it up and had like a green velvet inside yep, of yep. it. My great great grandmother purchased one and I still have it. So what I did was went to a designer in High Point, asked him to design one for me, but cover it with velvet print because I've specifically designed it for professional black females, like I told you. And I asked some females to look at it and they said, yeah, that's good. However, Odell, when you open it up, it'd be nice if it had some storage space inside. Mm -hmm. So I was able to put a kind of top over to open it and they wanted certain type of um, hinges that shut slowly and high quality and all this kind of stuff. And I played with it, but I said, because one thing that I've learned growing up in South Carolina, is that for a lot of poor black people and poor people in general who worked in other people's homes, like I, you know, my great, great, great grandmother cleaned white folks homes. That's what we say. And they wanted similar furniture that they saw in Miss Jones home, whether it was a China cabinet or a seated chest, anything like that. Well, today's professional black woman is different. So when you look at the Sankofa bird or other type of furniture that resonates with them or color or pattern texture that resonates with them, that's a market out there that I would say untapped market. But that's just a good looking black guy who been black my whole life. When did you who do understand this? this? About three years ago. Really? I have the two samples sitting in a furniture manufacturer in High Point right now. And I was doing it and then COVID hit. And then it was hard to get your hands on it. And then I was dealing with what the price point would be and how to ship it and everything, because it's more than just designing it. It's more than just designing, as you know. So that's something that people are very much interested in. And I will send you gentlemen pictures because I know you all believe me, but just in case for verification, that helps. <laughs> so it's just something that is is there. And I don't know, and maybe you do, and next furniture market, I hope I get an invitation to come as your guest so I can look around the furniture market just to see that sometimes markets are right in front of us because professional black women has the highest income and one of the most educated group of people in America. Really? Yeah, just do the numbers, run the numbers and look at it and we'll purchase. Now, I want to push back on one thing you said about the masses. That's true, but is that, make sure I say it right, Beverly Cleveland, Louis Vuitton, is that the name of it? They don't market to everybody. They have a select group on how they do things and I very rarely see their product on sale. Maybe they do, but then lately I saw where they could be refurbished in certain stores. Help me, what's what's that all about? Well, the secondhand market for luxury goods is a huge market. Yeah, it's, really, it's a huge market. And some people, they want it because it gives them access to something cheaper, but some people just love vintage design. Like if you look at classic Italian design and handbags and over time, how it's changed, like the classics still resonate, right? Is it a sense of a, a status that if I have a certain bag on my arm for those who know, know, and those who don't know, it doesn't matter? I think that's definitely the case for sure. I mean, 
but also it's the reason why there's a the the fake market you know with right. the, the 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 bags that look exactly like the real thing but from two feet i mean unless you just grab it and you're like is this real um no no <laughs> can't tell. nobody can tell but you taught me something the other day at lunch and bill i'll pass to you after this and I went home and I told my wife, I told my wife on you. I went home and told on you, <laughs> Kelly. Uh-oh. I said that, you know, I was having lunch with this gentleman today who was fascinating. And I asked him about furniture and I'm not going to mention any furniture names because I don't want any pushback. And it says, well, when I was growing up, you got furniture that lasted forever yeah. and quality. And now my kids get these furniture in a box and they put them together. And you said to me, Odell, because I was complaining about the longevity of it. It won't be antiques. And you said, they're not designed that way. Can you talk about that for our customers who understand who I didn't understand? And I think I'm the smartest, good looking black guy on the podcast today, but I didn't know that. And once you shared that with me and I shared it with my wife, we like, he's right. You're right. (laughs) Well, I mean, and this kind of goes back to my original statement, which was when furniture was very regionalized and now now it's being homogenized. And so um, there used to be this feeling of heirloom quality that when you made something, it was meant to be passed from generation to generation that you would carry your great grandmother's hope chest and she would pass it. That's what Yeah, I I call it a cedar chest. You're right. It was a hope test. Right. And it's meant to collect things of importance throughout your life. You know, it could be anything. It could be like yearbooks. It could be hair that fell out. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Can we build no, build no attention. Man, you can't do this to ADHD people. It's hard enough to stay on focus and stay hey, on point. I got three ADHD right here. <laughs> Yeah. And so there was this idea that you wanted to create something that would last generations. Now, furniture is like fashion and fashion comes and goes. I wish it would come and go faster because then we'll have more (laughs) more turnaround. But, you know, um, as it is now, you know, a typical bedroom or occasional furniture or dining room furniture, it's not meant to my kids are not going to have any interest in my furniture. And just like I don't have any interest in my grandmother's furniture, it doesn't work like that anymore. And it's kind of a shame in in some ways, but the antiques market is still like there's styles of furniture, like mid-century modern. And it's kind of a commodity that goes up and down the, the classic pieces. Like, so there is still a market for this furniture, but it's not a mass market. And um, the internet has changed everything on that. Exactly. Because when you do the internet, you were telling us the story on how you get rid of your, well, how you get rid of your samples and everything else. And I don't know if you want to get into that, but to build to his point, that my children, they want to get something that they could put together. They sit down and put it together and everything else versus when we were buying furniture, we wanted something that's like, man, this is going to last forever. So that helped me a lot. I'm still, I'm, I'm old. So I think I'm not interested in taking furniture out of a box that's like press wood, plywood type thing. And once you put the screws in it, it's great. But once you break it down, it's almost designed for one assemble and never move it on a moving truck. Yeah. Or it ends up in your kid's fraternity house or. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it doesn't, it's going to have an, another existence. It's just not going to be in, in a nice home. No, it's not designed for that. Well, we're getting near the end here. Is there anything last that you would like to share, Kelly, before we. No, it's, it's just, it's been a pleasure to be here with you guys to visit with your puppy dogs. Yeah. Cooper, oh, Kelly, Cooper came up to see help us. us though, Bill and Kelly entrepreneurs, you know, a lot of people listen to our show and it's a certain type who listen to us, entrepreneurs, mavericks, people who kind of deal outside the box. 
Kelly, what would you advice you would give entrepreneurs who have a vision? They have a vision and they know that this is what they're called to do, but they're working for someone else and they want to start off on their own, but they're afraid to really jump out and maybe they didn't have the safety nets that some of us have or didn't have. What advice would you give them to get started or you would tell them to stay where they are? Well, that's the ultimate question. And I think it really depends on where you are in your life, you know? For me, when I was 22 and I decided to go to Asia, the risk was if I fail, I come home, right? Worst wow. case, I yeah, failed. Yeah, you didn't have family. You didn't have kids. Right. And so if or I- a mortgage. Right. And so there's different <laughs> stages of your life. You know, you, you have kids, you have kids, you have mortgage, you have kids in college, you know, you're less inclined to just jump off. But now the, the world has changed. And I hate this expression, but it's very appliable, which is this side hustle. Okay. You have 24. 24- I like that side. I like that hustle though. I like the hustle. Well, so Odell you, knows what that's Yeah, exactly. You know, there's 24 <laughs> hours in my language, man. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so when I'm talking to college kids, I'm like, go all in. If you have a great idea, like stop what you're doing and go all in because there's no, there's no risk. Worst case scenario, you continue, you get your, your education and you get your nine to five job and life goes on. But if you have a great idea, a great widget, a great something, go all in on it. And because it's never been a better time. I mean, I think of all the things that didn't exist when if let's say that you were 22 years old and you wanted to, you, you had a great idea. You didn't have access to everything that these kids have now. Like everything has been democratized. You don't have to go make a sample. You can go to one of Andy Zimmerman's mills um, downtown, what, it, what he calls it. The uh, factory. The, the factory. Yeah. You can the make forge, your, the you can go to the forge. forge. You yeah. can make your prototype. You can put your prototype on the internet. You don't have to pay somebody to advertise wow. it for you. You can put it on the internet. You have all these tools that people didn't have 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago to take your idea without creating a huge overhead to um, creating all this front side, front side risk. You could do it. Now, a great idea is still a great idea and product is paramount. I mean, if you have something of substance, I don't care if you're 20 or 50, go for it, but just evaluate the level of, of risk and the risk that you're willing to take at that point in your life. And I think the younger you are, the more I would just go all in. I mean, I would just triple down, borrow from the parents, take a loan, seek outside investment, do whatever it takes to make it happen. Whereas, you know, later in life, maybe you don't want to take out equity in something that you have earned and that there's a danger of, of losing. So I think it's time and perspective, but nothing, nothing, nothing. I mean, and I'll say this until, until I'm blue in the face, there's no substitute for hard work. Yes, sir. There's no easy path. Nobody's going to hand you anything. There's not a golden ticket. The best things in life come from earning them on your own through hard work. Well, that's a great advice. That's a great way to end the show. Say that again. Uh, can you? I, I can. I said there's no substitute in life for hard work. And there's nothing more satisfying than when you accomplish it. And so you just go as hard and as fast as you can. You sure you haven't been listening to those preaching tapes, man? You sound like a preacher over here. <laughs> okay. Here we go. We're We're at the end. Okay. Kelly, thanks for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's fun. I, I, that's the thing I like about podcasts, by the way, it doesn't matter what the topic is because whenever you have engaged people talking, it's almost like a conversation. It's almost like you get the eavesdrop on somebody's high level conversation because you're sharing will. Yeah. It's just a conversation. That's yeah. all it is. And, and, you know, when you get people that have life experiences, like the three of us have, 
it's rich. I mean, there were stories that I wanted to say while you were talking and, and you know, we'll bring them out on another show. So, well, I'll tell you the other thing, especially for somebody like me, it does make you cognizant of interrupting. Cause I'm like the worst. I'm like, Oh, I got an idea. <laughs> I, <got> an, <laughs> I, 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 I want to jump all the time. We interrupt all the time. That's wanna, what we do. Yeah. I, <laughs> I want to jump in. So, so badly. Yeah, if you're a wallflower, this is not a nah, good deal nah, for nah, you. No, not Kelly, at all. Kelly, will you come back? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to have him. Yeah. Because, uh, um, you know, you guys advertise yourself as like, uh, opposites. He's the Republican yeah. and conservative he, and you're the liberal and I'm like the middle guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we made the middle guy. Maybe yeah. I had to change the name from Odell and Bill to Kelly, Odell and Bill. Yeah. The middle guy. I'm the, the middle, middle guy. guy. The meet, middle guy. Meet me in the middle. <laughs> <It's> Kelly. <laughs> Uh, that's I, in fact, there's that, that's it. That, uh, I've just created my new podcast. Meet me in the middle. I'm the opposite of common ground coming to Apple iTunes soon. Find Bill and Odell online at the common ground show. This podcast is a production of BG ad group. All rights reserved. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best-read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com.